Hi, my name's Andy Chamberlain, and this is the Creative Writer's Tool Belt, the podcast that gives you practical, accessible advice that you can apply straight away to your own writing. You can find out more at my website, andrewjchamberlain.com, where you'll also find out about the Creative Writer's Tool Belt handbook, which condenses all of the very best advice and insight from my expert guests and me in one place. I hope you enjoy this episode of the Creative Writer's Tool Belt podcast, and it's helpful to you on your writing journey. And welcome to episode 146 of the Creative Writer's Tool Belt. In this episode, I want to do just two things. First of all, I want to make a request. And second, I want to tell you a story. Well, the start of a story anyway. So first of all, my request is this. Please tell me about your writing pain. And in asking this, I'm coming back to a point that I made at the start of my last episode, which is this. Some of you may be thinking that I'm not doing enough of those episodes where I just share some good old writing advice on a topic related to the craft with a sprinkling of examples. And maybe you'd like to hear more of those kinds of episodes. And you know what? I'd love to do more of them. And I am looking around at the moment for topics to present in those kinds of episodes. So if you have a writing challenge and it's not something that I've covered before, Tell me about it, please, and maybe I can deal with it. Just drop me a line. It's andrew at andrewjchamberlain.com. Now, I can't guarantee that I'll deal with every single problem that people send me, but I'll deal with as many as I can. And I might even get some of my expert guests to have a go at tackling some of these issues as well. You could think of this as my equivalent of my submissions window is now open. So please do drop me a line. Tell me what challenges you're having with your writing at the moment. Maybe I can research a solution and share it for the benefit of everybody. So the second thing I'm going to do in this episode is tell you a story, or at least the start of a story. I'm going to read to you the original first chapter of my book, The Centauri Survivors. This chapter was how I first intended to start this story, and it was the start of the story for a number of years, but sadly it didn't make the cut. You won't find it in the finally published book, but you can listen to it right here on the Creative Writer's Tool Belt podcast. The Centauri Survivors is a story of adventure, betrayal and survival. And here are a few words to describe what happens in the story. When a habitable planet is discovered just four light years from Earth, governments and private corporations rush to build a ship to take the first humans there. But only a few of the colonists wake up from cryosleep after the 60-year journey, and as their ship comes into orbit around the new planet, they find themselves surrounded by death. As the survivors scramble to make sense of what has happened, they find their own lives under threat and, pursued by their enemies, they escape to the surface of the new planet. Caught between their human adversaries and whatever the planet throws at them, the survivors fight to stay alive as circumstances drive them towards a final, deadly confrontation. So this original first chapter that I'm going to read to you is just over 16 minutes long. So for a change, rather than listening intently to the podcast to learn something about the craft, just sit back, relax and enjoy this original first chapter of The Centauri Survivors. The Centauri Survivors, original first chapter by Andrew J. Chamberlain. Author's note. If there was ever a director's cut of The Centauri Survivors, this chapter would be in it. For most of the development of the book, this was the first chapter, describing the discovery and betrayal that would set in motion all of the action for the rest of the story as it plays out in the century after these events occur. 
I'm delighted to be able to share with you this chapter as an insight into how it all began and a taster of what's in store for the Centauri survivors. Hello and welcome to the ESOcast. This week, ESO's governing body, the Council, has selected Cerro Amazonas in Chile as the site for the world's future biggest eye on the sky, the new and revolutionary 42-meter European Extremely Large Telescope. But how do we find the locations for the best telescopes in the world? European Extremely Large Telescope, EELT, Atacama Desert, Chile, July 2025. Marcel Delon looked down from the summit of Cerro Armazones and thought about how he was going to betray his colleagues. Behind him, the dark wings of the telescope's dome were open, exposing it to the stars. In his hands, Delon cupped the steel flask of hot coffee and he shivered as the wind cut through the material of his jacket. He looked over his shoulder, but no one had followed him out. The concourse in front of the observatory was bare, apart from the squat mass of the old Land Rover Discovery, which sat waiting to take them back down to civilization. In front of him, the arid slope of the mountain swept away into the darkness. He looked up through the bitter, clear air to the starlit trail of matter that made up the local arm of the Milky Way. My God, he thought, we must go there, we must. He glanced behind himself again and spoke out loud, indulging in the solitude. We are coming. We will build ships and we will cross the void and we will find a new home amongst the stars. We will engage with whatever and whoever is out there. And... And what, he thought. What exactly will we do? Offer friendship or trade or war? Which version of ourselves will we take to the stars? But he knew the answer to that question already. Humanity would arrive with every version of itself. For how could it be otherwise? We will come as guests, tourists and invaders. A distant whine of metal grabbed his attention and he spun round to see his colleague Alain, silhouetted against the light of the observatory entrance. Marcel, called Alain. Quick, get back in here. He flicked the remaining coffee across the gravel and ran back up the incline. What, what's happened, he shouted, but Alain had already retreated into the warmth of the control complex. Maybe they'd seen something in the astronomical data, some pattern or insight, or perhaps the old lady had had an accident? The old lady in question was their project leader, Dr. Zira North. Marcel respected Dr. North and was even fond of her despite her abrupt manner, and for this and many other reasons, he hoped it was the data. Of course, if any of them really did have an accident up here, they'd have to wait hours for any medical support to arrive. He ran across the concourse and through the open door into the complex, tossing his coat onto the floor before he jogged up to the control room. Alain stood at one of the desks, moving from one foot to the other in that way he always did when he thought they'd found something significant. Dr North was next to him, hunched behind a bank of screens. Marcel could hear that necklace of hers, large yellow beads clacking over the top of her fleece. He realised it was the data after all and slowed down to a walk. Marcel, come, come, we need you, Dr North beckoned to him. Bring your brain, please. That was a favourite phrase of hers. It meant she wanted him to think hard about something she was about to show him. 
She eased herself away from the desk so that he could pull up a chair and look for himself. He stole a glance at Alain, but his colleague gave nothing away, simply nodding towards the papers on the table and the rows of numbers on the screens in front of them. Marcel placed the empty flask on the desk and sat down. OK, he said, what have we got? Neither of the other two said anything. The screens in front of him showed data on their target from a variety of different sources, like the same image observed by different CCTV cameras. There was their own data, images enhanced from the EELT's own adaptive optics, and data from other telescopes, including the James Webb Space Telescope, finally launched just two years ago, and now orbiting one and a half million kilometres above them. All of this data related to one object, a planet they knew existed, but which was still only a rock of unknown composition. Their task had been to unpick the data and discover the cocktail of elements in the planet's atmosphere and to make a more accurate assessment of its size and mass. The answer to these questions and more would provide the answer to the question that the world always asked. Although really it was two questions. Is it habitable? And is there life there? Marcel looked at the screens and then up at his colleagues. They'd seen something and they wanted him to see it too. What does the inference software say, he said. Come on, you guys have been looking at this more than I have. Never mind the software, said Dr North, pushing her wireframe spectacles back up her nose. Don't hide behind the machines, Dr Dillon. I want to know what you think. Behave like a proper scientist. Look at the data and give me your opinion. He turned back to the screens and started to draw the disparate bits of information together for himself. Oh, come on, said Alan after a moment. You've only got to look at it for a few seconds to see. Dr North raised a finger to silence him. She turned to Marcel. Pay no attention to your colleague here. He would have us on the talk shows every month with a new planet. Alan muttered something and then paced away. Marcel watched him for a moment and then turned back to the screens. The mass of steel and glass above them creaked and moaned as the wind gusted across the infrastructure. The object of their fascination was a planet orbiting the star Alpha Centauri B a mere four light years away. With its companion stars Alpha Centauri A and Proxima Centauri, this cluster was our closest stellar neighbour. The team had spent months gathering and collating the data and Marcel knew only too well that there was much more than just academic interest in this project. If this data confirmed the potential of the planet, another home for humanity might just be within our reach. And before the night was over, he would have to go back out into the frosty air and make that phone call. He turned back to the numbers. What are you saying to me, he whispered under his breath as he scanned the data. Dr North seemed convinced that this was a very special planet, the one, but they had to be cautious. There'd been too many false alarms in the past. Not a lumbering gas giant like Saturn or Jupiter, easy to pick out amongst the observatory readings, and not a hard-baked lump of rock like Mercury, scorched and lifeless. What they were looking for was something much harder to find, much more elusive, a place that could breathe, a warm, wet planet that could cradle life itself. This place wouldn't be too hot or too cold. In fact, it would be just right, like the story of the little girl who ate the baby bear's porridge because it was the perfect temperature. No wonder they called them Goldilocks planets. Alan, who had been pacing around the control room, came back to the desk. Well, he said, give me a chance, snapped Marcel. Come, Alan, said Dr North, we shall make tea. We must leave Marcel to the business of seeing or not seeing what you and I have seen. Marcel listened to the clump of their boots as the two of them walked across the room and out towards the facility's small galley kitchen. He breathed deeply and rubbed his eyes. His neck ached and he felt light-headed, dizzy. He was never entirely comfortable with the effects of the altitude and he could feel them now. 
Somewhere far away, he could hear the clatter of cups, the cadence of Alan's voice. He scrolled through the numbers and studied the images, cross-checking the different observations. As the minutes passed, he forgot about his colleagues and lost himself in the data. Gradually, it emerges right before him, like a whisper amidst the noise of all the numbers. It is the nature of the prey that it hides itself, and he knows that if he looks at one data point, he will miss it. Even three or four won't flush it out. But if he takes it all together, it's there. Mass and temperature, oxygen, carbon dioxide, even water, it's all there. Marcel shuts his eyes and the rows of numbers float across his eyelids. He didn't want to believe it, and not just because he didn't want to be disappointed again. He realised now how scared he was of making the call, of committing to an opinion. He wanted to tell them they were wrong. He wanted the data to be inconclusive and vague. He wanted to hide in the reassurance of caution, to press for more months of observations and data gathering. But there was Dr North's voice again in his head. Don't hide behind the machines, Marcel. And he knew that he couldn't hide anymore. The numbers refused to contradict themselves. They did not offer the comfort of uncertainty. This planet wasn't a burning rock or a gassy wasteland. This planet really was just right. He paused outside the door of the kitchen, listening to the muffled voices. No, Alain, Dr. North's voice was adamant. No, 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 he will see it. I know he's cautious and God knows we need some of that, but he will believe it. But he's so measured, said Alan, so careful. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm more cautious than you think I am. But he won't know how to say yes, even if he believes it. His caution has probably saved us several embarrassing moments, said Dr. North. You remember that data we had six months ago? We would have had some explaining to do if... Marcel put his hand on the metal door handle and then pushed sharply. The steamy warmth of the galley kitchen flowed out into the corridor, the smell of coffee and microwave snacks. Dr. North peered over her spectacles and Alan arched his eyebrows, asking the unspoken question. Marcel looked from one to the other and the coffee machine released a breathy hiss as liquid struck the hot plate. This is it, he whispered. This is the one. Alan fist-pumped the air. Yes! This one even passes the Marcel test. Dr North let out a deep sigh and rested a hand against the galley counter. You okay, Doc? asked Alan. Yes, yes, of course, she said, raising her hand. Now I believe we have a bottle of something hidden away just for this moment. Why don't one of you go and find it? She turned and walked out of the galley and back into the observatory. We've done it, whispered Alan. This really is it. This is the mother load. Maybe they'll name it after her, said Marcel. They could at least give her that after all these years. Alan snorted. That sort of thing always gets carved up by the politicians and financiers. Somebody would have paid to be a sponsor for this planet before the week's out. I'll get that bottle, said Marcel. Then I'll take it outside for a couple of minutes to make sure it's chilled. He turned to the door. Hey, Marcel, said Alan. What? It's ours as well, you know. The old lady wouldn't deny us that. We did this, you and me. Marcel smiled briefly and headed off towards one of the storerooms. Leaving the control room, he walked to the other end of the facility, to the storeroom where they kept all the mundane supplies for the EELT staff. Coffee and tea, napkins and toilet rolls, paper and ink for the printers. Marcel opened the door and snapped on the light. It buzzed for a second before fully coming on. Behind the packets and boxes, hidden out of sight and in direct violation of the observatory's regulations, they'd hidden a bottle of 1928 Krug that Dr North had quietly brought up to the summit months ago. Neither of them had asked her where she'd got it from. Astonishingly expensive champagne, she had said, cradling the bottle, to mark an astonishingly important event.
It had been a gesture of defiance during a particularly trying time for the team. Marcel and Alain had spent weeks staring at what amounted to celestial noise, while Dr North had gone into battle with the board about their next round of funding. Marcel rummaged around at the back of the store and there it was, propped up at the back of the cupboard behind some bottles of antibacterial soap. There were no glasses but that didn't matter, rinsed coffee mugs would serve well enough. He picked up the bottle and walked back out into the corridor, scooping up his jacket as he went. No one saw him as he turned away from the control room and towards one of the other exits. He closed up the Velcro on his jacket and carefully, gently opened the door, easing his way out into the cold air. The wind had picked up. It whipped at the lapels of his jacket and burned his nose and ears. He tucked the bottle of Krug under his arm and started walking. For a moment he forgot what he needed to do, why he was out here. The sparse, clear air at this altitude could make anyone forgetful. It was a hazard of working at these heights and it seemed to affect him more than it did his colleagues. He paused and frowned and then he composed himself and started hurrying across the concourse to the edge of the plateau. When he was about 100 metres away he gently laid the bottle at his feet and looked up again, following the direction of the great telescope up towards Alpha Centauri B and its warm, precious planet. He moved on further to where the rim of the plateau fell away to the slopes below and dug a phone out of his pocket. It had just one number on it. He blinked the water from his eyes, turned the volume up as high as it would go and called the number. Yes, a woman's voice, faint in the wind, another accent in another country. This is Marcel Delon, he whispered. Who? Dr. Marcel Delon. He spoke more loudly now and glanced behind himself. From the observatory. For a moment there was nothing but the buffeting of the wind and the dark grey shapes of the rocks below. Was he right about this, he thought. It would be a disaster for him if it turned out to be another false alarm. The woman's voice grabbed his attention. Marcel, what news do you have for us? We think this is it, his voice sounded small and desperate in the wind. This planet is the one. The Centauri B candidate. Yes, please hold on. Again the phone went silent. He glanced at the screen to make sure he was still on the call. Come on, he whispered to himself, let's get this over with. Dr. Delon? The voice made him jump. Yes, he said. This is Callum Mortis. Marcel had not expected to speak to the man himself. Mr. Mortis, sir. Yes, well, what have you got for me? said Mortis. Well, said Marcel, as you know, we've been studying the data from the candidate planet around Alpha Centauri B and the... You need to speak up, interrupted Mortis. You sound like you're standing in a wind tunnel. I needed to leave the observatory to make this call, Mr. Mortis, he shouted. The weather up here is... Just speak up and tell me what you've found. This could be your candidate planet, he said. The mass spectroscopy readings are all... Well, phenomenal. And as you know, the candidate is right in the middle of the habitable zone. Two natural satellites. I can... What does Dr. North think? Interrupted Mortis. And that other guy. Albert, is it? They're convinced. Dr. North is preparing a statement on behalf of the project right now. And what do you think, Dr. Dillon? Said Mortis. This was it. The final end of any wriggle room he might have had. Marcel glanced back at the building, half expecting to see his colleague standing there staring at him. I think it's compelling, Mr. Mortis, he said at last. Although there will need to be more observations. Further analysis of the day. Stop. There was silence for a moment while Marcel waited, listening to the howl of the surrounding air. What do you think, Dr. Dillon? Is this it or not? Well, the data's extraordinary. There's is this the planet, shouted Mortis. Yes or no? Yes, yes. If I had to make that call, I would say yes. This is the planet you've been looking for. Send me a report, a summary, within the next four hours. Do you understand? said Mortis. Yes, said Marcel, but I must be careful. My colleagues will be watching me. There's only three of us up here and there's nowhere to hide. Somewhere in the middle of the sentence, he realised he was talking to thin air. Mortis had gone and Marcel 
was alone. His face tingled and his nose started to run. He turned back towards the observatory and started walking. He was, he realised, bought and paid for. He'd breached his contract, of course, sharing this news before the official announcement. And he'd deceived his colleagues, people he considered to be his friends. Now he could only pretend to share in their joy, knowing that he had betrayed them. He pushed the feelings of shame down and thought about why he had taken this risk. He thought about the money he would receive for passing on this information. Quite a lot of money, in fact. And he could do so many things with it. He'd given the first payment to his parents, lying to them about getting a bonus. They didn't have a clue how poor a postdoc's researcher's life really was. He'd paid for them to have a holiday, and that had felt good. Then the next payment came, and he quickly acquired a taste for the life. The Mercedes he wouldn't have otherwise have been able to afford. The skiing trip to Aspen with his new girlfriend, Anya. But he was Mortis's man now, and he always would be. He was almost back at the door when he stopped, turned around, faced into the wind again, and went back to retrieve the bottle of Krug that he'd left on the icy gravel. Thank you for listening to this original chapter from The Centauri Survivors. If you've enjoyed this original chapter, you can get a copy of the book in ebook or paperback format from Amazon right now. This audio version of the original chapter of The Centauri Survivors is copyright 2019 by Andrew J. Chamberlain. The track at the start of the audio is taken from ESOcast, the YouTube video cast of the European Southern Observatory, published on YouTube on the 27th of April 2010. And I can assure you that the European Extremely Large Telescope is very real indeed. So that's it for this episode. Please don't forget to drop me a line and tell me about the writing challenges you're facing at the moment. That email address again is andrew at andrewjchamberlain.com. That's it for this rather unusual episode. Thank you for listening. And until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to the Creative Writers Toolbelt podcast. If you want to find out more about the podcast or me, just go to my website. It's andrewjchamberlain.com.